Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word of God. We thank you for this place that we come to, Lord, called Calvary Lakeside. And we just uh, so blessed because of this place, Lord, and because of you. So we just give everything to you today as we go through your word. And we just thank you for everything that we have and we don't have, Lord. And we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the example of a great leader. Um, Just to give a little bit of an overview or a summary here, leading up to this book. Nehemiah hears of the crisis condition in Jerusalem. Some hundred years after the time of Moses and some 400 years before the birth of Christ, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people were in a desperate state. And God's going to put this on the heart of Nehemiah. So when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they deported almost everyone from the city and the surrounding areas. For 70-some years, Jerusalem was a ghost town. Nobody was there. So many Jews, when deported to Babylon, began to make homes for themselves. You know, after 70 years, there's a generation gone. And they settled down with no desire to return to the land that God promised them, or promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob became, his name became Israel, and the nation of Israel is Israel. So some of these faithful Jews were raised up in places of prominence while they were away. To name a few, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and you know all the stories about them and the lion and the den and just survival. And they became leaders in Babylon. So after 70 years of captivity, the Jewish people were given an opportunity to return to their promised land where God had promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. So out of the 2.3 million Jews deported from their homeland, only 50,000 decided to return and, and go back to the promised land. It's a small number. It's only approximately 2% of all the people. But God always has a remnant. He always has a group of people that he sends out ahead or he, or he leaves behind so that his remnant is there, so that the things that were learned can be passed along from generation to generation. So in the days of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. This is prior to Nehemiah's time and laid a spiritual foundation for Israel once again. And it's very important to understand that we need a spiritual foundation, even in our own lives. If our spiritual foundation is strong and uncracked or, or broken, then the rest of us is kind of a mess. So God had the thought of restoring his temple before he brought the people back so they would have a place to worship and pray and serve him. So at this time, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were in rubble. Everything was on the ground. So Ezra tells us that some 75 years before, they tried to rebuild the walls, but were stopped by their enemies. You can only think that they went out on their own accord and the Lord wasn't with them. Maybe they didn't you know, uh, asked the Lord to be with them, or they didn't take direction from him. But everything ended up on the ground again. So the walls remained in ruin. 
However, it's interesting that the Lord inspired Ezra and his helpers to build the temple before any of the walls and gates of the city were were rebuilt. The most important thing was they were going to have a place where they could meet the Lord. So God established the spiritual foundation before he established restoration or the protection of the walls and the gates for his people and putting their priorities in order for a spiritual order and then safety for his people. So we're going to go into uh, the first chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to look at the first three verses right away here. And Nehemiah is, it's really Nehemiah hears of Jerusalem's condition. So verse 1 once, as the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, that's a tough one, it came to pass in the month of Shizlev, which is December, that's a significant thing here to remember, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, it's like a fortress, that Hannah and I, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in province, are they in great distress and reproach? The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. So he gets an overview of what's going on back there. So Nehemiah lived in Shushan, the capital city of Persia, in what's called the citadel, which is the fortified place that the Persian people and the rulers live. By where he lives alone, we know that he was an important or recognized person. You didn't get in there if you weren't. So we find him asking the people who had come from Judah out of their captivity, how is Jerusalem? He was, he was interested and he wanted to know it. This is the beginning of his desire to see Jerusalem and because he has a heart for God, he has a heart for those people. That starts first. We love God. What's the two greatest commandments God? Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. So Nehemiah had the heart described in Psalm 137, verse 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. What happens when your tongue is stuck to the top of your mouth? You can't speak. You know, you can't say anything. And this is kind of funny. The only time I can remember that in my life was having a peanut butter and marshmallow fluff sandwich. About that big. He took a big bite of it, couldn't even open my mouth. And my mother was like, hey, that's pretty sad there, you know. <laughs> but finally, of course, I did. I'm here today with my mouth open. But uh, it was kind of funny. But the thing tasted so great. So the news the people gave him was bad, a bad state of the people. And the bad state of the city walls and gates. No protection and no defense. Open at all times for their enemies to come in and do whatever they wanted. So their lives of their families were valuable to the people, like all of our families are. But how they had rebuilt the temple now was going to play a, a significant role. And the only possession of value in Jerusalem at that moment was the temple. You know, a place where they could see and begin to get hope. So both the people and the rebuilt temple needed to be protected. 
So we go on to verse 4. It says, Nehemiah's reaction to the news about Jerusalem and its people. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned. For many days I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what did Nehemiah do? He sat down and wept. He cried. This is an extreme reaction. You know, it took every emotion out of him. He just didn't feel bad. He was devastated by this news. He had a love for people. He had a love for God. And he responds by what? Fasting and praying. And he mourns for many days. Goes into mourning like the losses there, you know. So God's preparation for Nehemiah began long before he was given the summary of the condition of Jerusalem and the Jews living there. God saw the need from heaven, and Nehemiah was the man God selected, and that God needed a leader, and Nehemiah was that man. But there was no way he could do it alone. This job was huge. Couldn't go over there. He'd be there still today, putting up bricks and fixing the gates and things like that. So you need a leader to lead people. And there was no way he could do it alone, and Nehemiah would lead and influence other people to complete the task that God wanted at that time. He got it going. He surrounded. He had a little plan. But he saw the big picture. But there was no way. Nehemiah is a book all about leadership. This whole book, all the chapters point to the characteristics and the way a leader operates. Since leadership is influence and influencing things to happen, getting people together, getting their ideas, getting them to work, we all know about that. As supervisors of people in industry or on a construction job or something like that, some days it's tough to get people to work. And leadership really applies to everybody, all of us because we're all called to lead the word of God to the people of the world. So it's, very, it's a great book. It's a great book. Everyone has an area of leadership in some way or another. We have gifts. We have a way that God can take us and use us as a leader. And the question is, if we are to be a good leader or a bad leader, there's both. You find that out in the army. When I was in the army, there were some great leaders, and there was really some knuckleheads. But leaders must prepare themselves for difficult work because it won't be easy. Whatever task we have at hand to do for the Lord is always going to get some kind of resistance. You know, Satan doesn't like we're doing things for God. So leaders must have a big vision, see the big picture. And... And Nehemiah had one. He saw this thing. The Lord was preparing his heart. So though Nehemiah is going to correct a problem that's been around 150 years. So how do you go about that? So, um, and though Nehemiah is, is going to do something that man failed on before. So the track record was somebody else went there and failed. And the question would be, how am I going to do this? But he's not putting himself in there. He's going to give it to the Lord. So to be a successful leader, we must have a vision and a goal that's big enough. Can't be short-sighted. We need to think about things and check things off and move along that way, no matter what the task is. So, of course, um, Nehemiah starts off with taking a vacation, right? I've got to get mentally ready for this. Or 
for pampering himself. You know, no, that's not the way he went about it. He says in verse 4, he was what? He was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, before his God, our God, the Lord God Almighty. Nehemiah's initial reaction went way beyond weeping. It went to the very marrow of his bones. Many times the concern will come over us in a flash and then pass us quickly. We have had things like that that bother us and then we kind of roll it off and keep on going. But the burden will remain until the problem that prompted the burden is solved. It won't go away. What we've got to look for is the root cause, and I'm using terminology out of industry. You have a failure in industry, first thing somebody says is, you need to find out what the root cause is of that problem. And then you go into a thing called corrective and preventive action. So what's the correction? Go out, get with God, pray, fast. And what's the preventive action? Whatever God tells us to do to go out and take care of the problem and prevent it from happening again. So it should be noted what Nehemiah did not do. He didn't complain or whine or see somebody else or point to somebody else and say, hey, you go fix that problem. Passes it off. He immediately did what he could do. He prayed and intensely sought God in this situation. He also had a clear understanding of whom he fasted and prayed to, the God of heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he was going in the right direction. He started out correctly. So now we see in verses 5 to 7 what Nehemiah's prayer is all about. And I said in verse 5, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant mercy with those who love you and observe you in commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. That's a significant verse. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So prayer is essential to leadership. It has to be a part of it in whatever we lead. It appears that Nehemiah prayed for four months. He went from December till April. That's four months. Before he did anything, he was in preparation. He sought the Lord. He came before him. He prayed. He fasted. He got rid of his flesh and let the Holy Spirit, you know, enliven him. Um, Later in the book of Nehemiah, after the work of rebuilding the walls actually begins, it only takes 52 days to finish the job. 52 days. And this circumference in, Israel, in uh, Jerusalem is huge. If you ever get to go to Jerusalem, you get up to walk up on the wall and you walk around the city. It's pretty big. And it's not a short wall. It's a tall wall. And it's not a gate that's about the size of this thing right here. 
It's a huge gate. It's a gate like you see in the uh, castles and things like that. So the 52-day project had a four-month foundation. And what was that? Prayer. You laid everything and built everything on prayer. So Nehemiah took his pain and stress to God in prayer. And it seems that he was able to leave it there. There could be people here this morning or online with us that are trying to relieve stress and pain, whatever it is, whatever the cause, through entertainment or trying to get away from it or distracted. But all that does is divert our attention away from what we really need to do. Entertainment doesn't give solutions to our issues that we face. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, Prayer will give us strength when you wait on the Lord in prayer. And what's the last part of that? He will renew our strength. Prayer gives us strength, gives us stamina, gives us the will to go out and get done what God wants us to do. So verse 5 here defines humility by simply understanding there is a God enthroned in the heavens and I am not him. That's what Nehemiah says. I'm not God, you're God. Verse 5 defines humility also by simply understanding there is a God enthroned in the heavens and I'm not him. But the humility also understands my complete dependence on God. I have to be totally dependent on God from the time I wake, well, 24 hours a day. You know, something comes along. You start off the day with the prayer. I say, Lord, I'm giving this day to you spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally. All of those things can affect us. And all the things like that happen at work or school or wherever you might be. But I'm giving it to you, Lord. And verse 6 says, Humility also understands my, my complete dependence on God. I'm completely dependent on him. I don't give 80% to God. I give 100%. And some days that's tough. You don't feel like doing it. You don't feel well. You got a headache or you got a migraine or something going on. But that's the time to do it even more, to give more to God. And verse 6 also says humility will confess sin openly without an excuse for the sin. You know, here's my sins, Lord. We should never say, Lord, if I sinned. You know, we know when we sin. And, or, Lord, I'm sorry, but you know how hard it was. Of course he does. You know, we don't enter our prayer like that. We just give it all to him and ask him for an answer or a way. We can only find freedom in open, honest confession without any attempt at excuse or wondering if I sinned or not. We all know when we sin. In verse 7, again, humility. There's a theme going here, a characteristic of a great leader. Humility identifies with the needy. Obviously, Nehemiah was a godly man, but he opened, openly and passionately put himself with his father's house with Israel and all the Jewish people by using the word we, not they. He put himself amongst the people. You know how people a lot of times use and take credit for things that other people have done? Like even in work, you know, to take a product and get it out the back door and deliver it to a customer. 
takes a lot of work by a lot of people. But I hear a lot of leaders or managers in industry say, I got that for you, boss. I got that for you. Forgetting the 20 people that were there that helped him get there. We all have that. We have the body of Christ. We have each other, everybody in this room, side by side, together. If we have a problem, call somebody. If you have to confess or talk, get friendly with somebody that you can trust in the church. Um, ministry is the same way. You know, we don't take the credit for ministry. We give it to God. It's his glory. It's his conquest. It's the way he is. But we get the joy of doing it and the happiness that we know that the Lord has when we're doing things right. So now in Nehemiah, uh, verses 8 through 10, Nehemiah comes to God looking to God's promises. So now he wants something to go on. In verse 8 it says, Remember I pray the word that you commanded your servant, Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Where is Israel today? But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the furthest part of the heavens yet, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants. So many times you and yours have used in this verse. It's five times. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your great strong hand. Gave it all. This is you, Lord. Nothing about me. So we see the word remember at the beginning of this in verse 8. This is a powerful prayer, a way to come to God, asking him to remember his promises. You know, we say, hey, I accept them, but remember your promises, Lord, so I can get this thing going through my brain. Psalm 81.10 says, God says to his people, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. In other words, speak to me, and I'll give you the answer. I might not give it to you today. It might be a week. It might be a month. It might be way down the road, but he'll give us an answer. And sometimes that answer is no, and sometimes that answer is wait. We get impatient sometimes. We wait upon the Lord. So God opens his storehouse when we open our mouths. It starts flowing, his grace, his mercy. His forgiveness, everything's there. And asking him to perform his promises. God, show them to us. In verse 8 and 9, Nehemiah quotes from Leviticus, chapter 26 and Deuteronomy, chapter 30. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. The nation of Israel isn't just in Israel today. It's all over. There's remnants all over this, this world. But if you return to me, and they're beginning to return, there's many people that come back to Israel every day. They have, they have mobile homes for them. They set them up. They get them educated a little bit, and then they put them to work in whatever their gift is. And keep my commandments and do them. Look at all the commandments the Jews have to keep. All the laws. Hundreds of laws. Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And remember now, in Jerusalem, he has a place called the temple. And this is a place where the Jews can now go and worship the Lord. 
So in verse 10, we see Nehemiah states a conditional promise. The condition was returning to God and keeping his commandments. He had no knowledge if the nation of Israel were keeping the commandments because he didn't know them. He just heard about them. But he knew he was keeping them. He was a man of God. He had appeared before the king. He had appeared before his peers that were there. He had to walk with the Lord. In verse 7, previously, by identifying himself with the nation in their sin, the nation could also identify itself with Nehemiah. It's the mark of a good leader. I'm part of you guys. I'm with you guys. I'm leading you guys. But we're going shoulder to shoulder ahead. In his godly fulfillment of those conditions and the conditions that he had to face, it's totally overwhelming. He's praying in an intercessory for the people of Jerusalem. He's praying for them so that when they get there and, and he gets there with the people he's going with and the people he's going to meet, they're all going to have this desire to pray, but you've got to pray for it ahead of time. Whenever you go out on a missions field, you don't start praying the day you're going. Months. Rudy reminded me this morning, Greg Laurie has a, a crusade in um, Idaho. It's been going on this weekend. They prayed for weeks and weeks and weeks, and some people in this church were praying for that months ago so that he would be successful and combat the enemy. And as Rudy told me one time when he, when he prayed at the stadium, I think either for uh, uh, Greg Laurie or Billy Graham, there was a group of guys with him, and they prayed, and they brought them down to the floor of the stadium at Jack Murphy, and there were seats there and things like that. They prayed for all the seats. They prayed for all the seats in the stadium for the people that would come in. That's how you prepare. It sounds overwhelming, but God does great things, and if you want to know what those were, ask Rudy. He'll tell you exactly what happened when all of that came down. So we get to verse 11. Nehemiah now prays with the heart ready to do something. I'm ready to go. All right, coach, let me in the game. I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to play the good for what I got to do for you. So verse 11 says, Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Servant him, servants, the Jewish people who desire to fear your name. His name is the greatest name in all the universe. You pray in his name, he does things that are miraculous sometimes. And let your servant prosper this day. Lord, give me success, please. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's ready to go in and talk to the king. And then at the end of it, it's kind of interesting, he puts in, for I was the king's cupbearer. You think, well, what is that doing there? We're going to find out. Because it's important to know that. Everything in the word of God is important. Nothing is unimportant. So Nehemiah 1.11 says, Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Grant Nehemiah, before he goes and sees this king, who controls life and death over him, mercy. Nehemiah con concluded by asking God to bless him when he would soon speak to the king of Persia about this matter that God put on his heart. He knew the man had to be um, prepared before he got there. You know, and he was trusting God that God would do that. So Nehemiah was going to do something about the sorry state of Jerusalem's walls and the people 
And he knows without intervention, he can't do anything. He needs the Lord. He also says, let your servant prosper this day. Want to be successful. This is a prayer of a man of action, not somebody remaining on the sidelines or sitting on the bench and watching it go on and, hey, do this, do that. He's in the middle of it. Nehemiah does not ask God, please make it all better. Then I won't have to do anything. No, God has a plan. He wants people to see his plan. God, please get someone else moving on this problem. How many times have we said that? Something comes up and say, I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that. Next thing you know, you're driving home and the Lord's saying, yeah, you're the one I want to do that. It's like, I didn't hear you. Yes, you did. This is what I want. And then you do it. And the blessing is a thousandfold. It's, it's, it's incredible. So instead, his prayer is, God, use me to make it better. Use me. A lot of people have said that in the Bible to answer. God, send me. It's all over the Bible. Some, God asked somebody to do something. Guys, please send me. They're excited to go. So Charles Spurgeon says, one of the greatest preachers that ever walked the planet, laying the matter to heart, he did not begin to speak with other people about what they would do. No, did he draw up a wonderful scheme, you know, a little diagram about what he might, might be done. If so, many thousands of people joined in the enterprise, thousands of people. But it occurred to him that he would do something how? Himself. He would take the first step. That's what faith is. We did that when we come to Jesus. We took faith. God rewarded us for that. And he gave us the blood of Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And he also gave us his righteousness. What a gift. Wow. You know, it's like, wow. I often don't feel that way. I know I'm a sinner. I know that I sin. But I also know that God has forgiven my sins. So that's how it should be. What can I do for you, Lord? He ends the chapter sharing his portion before or his position before King Artaxerxes. What is his job? He's the cupbearer. Brings in a cup. You know, here's your cup of water. Here's your cup of 7-Up, whatever they drank at that time. What exactly is a cupbearer? So I looked it up. The Hebrew word for cupbearer is the masculine noun pronounced mashkeh. It's cupbearer, and it has a bunch of meanings. It depends upon the context, depends upon the tense. The meanings of the word are drink, drinking vessels. I like this one, butlership, his butlership, or office of the butler, or butler itself, or cupbearer. So what is the responsibility of that position? Because every job has a responsibility. The Dictionary of the Bible, published by Charles Scribner and Sons, offers this commentary uh, on the office of the cupbearer. They said, and this is the definition to them, the holder of this office was brought into confidential relations with the king. He was side by side. He's seen him many, many times a day. It must have been thoroughly trustworthy as part of his duty was to guard against poison 
in the king's cup or his food. Who do you think has that today? The president of the United States. He has somebody that checks every one of his meals and every one of his drinks. Why? Because somebody might try to poison him. You know, rulers of nations do this. And this king was doing that, and Nehemiah was the one. If it was good, Nehemiah stood up and walked away. If it was bad, they'd drag him away. But fortunately, nobody was trying to poison the king. So what are the leadership characters that Nehemiah has that we can take from chapter 1 that we've just looked at? One is a burden for his people. God put that on his heart long before the people came. A man of prayer. What's the first thing he did? He went right to prayer. Okay, I'm going there. Humility. This is a great thing. It's tough to be humble sometimes, but God rewards our humility. Come before the Lord. Lord, you are the God. You are in control. I give this to you. Now show me how to carry it out. He united himself to the people. He didn't separate and point the finger. He put himself in the middle of it. These are all things we can do as leaders. He was a man of vision, and he had a goal. Every good leader has a vision and looking down the road. So whatever ministry you have or whatever ministry you're in, you need a vision for that, not just for today, but tomorrow and the next day and down the road. In industry, we have three-year, we used to have five-year plans, figure out how a company was going to grow or now we're down to three, and, and this year we're looking at two years in it, you know, because it's getting tighter. I think that's somewhat maybe a characteristic of maybe the Lord's coming back soon with all the craziness that's going on in the world. So there's a couple of things today to think about regarding the world today and where it is God wants you and me to be. So we think about ineffective, arrogant, unwise, greedy leaderships sinks or destroys a nation. We're in the middle of that. In a time of leadership, crisis all over the world, and we can see it, it's in the news, and we only see a portion of it, causing chaos and oppressing regimes. There's a war going on between Russia and the Ukraine, but it's involving the world. Let us look at Nehemiah's exceptional leadership and see if there's something we can emulate from him. If only our leaders would read the book of Nehemiah. Congressmen, senators, president, vice president, cabinet, all these people. And the state level, our governor, you know, that somebody would witness to them and go. And that's our job, is to go out and say the word of God to people and give them the truth. And the Bible says the truth will set them free. It'll take away from where they're going. We need to pray. We need to be praying for this country every day. God will change things. We can't turn the wrench and tighten the nuts and bolts, but he can. Or he can loosen them up or he can change them. He's the powerful God that can do anything, anything in the world. He just wants to hear from us. You know, he wants to hear who we are and what our request is and whatever it is. If you're raising your kids... You know, it's not an easy job, especially not today. The influence in school and the teaching. God was thrown out of the schools years ago. Prayer was in schools, now it isn't. People used to stand at the pole 
Remember, meet me at the pole and pray. I won't even let you do that now. So things that were there that were visible to other people that were unsaved would see people that were saved doing things that were so great. You know, that's why our prayer list in this church, and I'm guilty as anybody, should be longer. should be long. Praying for the things that God puts on your heart, in, in your very soul, and putting it out there. And letting the people of the church here that pray, pray. We've got some great prayer warriors, as, as Pat mentioned in the announcements. And they'll pray, they are doing it. You know, and you can see the results. They pray for all the ministries. They pray for the Bible studies. They pray for people that are sick. They pray for people that are well, that they think probably need help. Or they just pray for the pastor and his wife. It doesn't matter how big your church is or how small it is. The enemy is attacking continuously every day because he doesn't want this place to be here. This is a place of light in Lakeside. And our pastor is a man that brings the word and brings the truth. And brings all of this to us. It's our job to bring it out. At the hardware store. Instead of complaining about how long it took you to get a, you know, whatever it is, a fuse or something over there. Might have a conversation with somebody about the Lord. So one other thing is, when we despair, we need to remember. All throughout history, the way of truth and love have always won. Truth and love will always bear out. Lies will always fall. A lie is like a rubber band. Stretch, 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 and then it lets loose and hits you in the face. And that hurts. They have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they seem invincible. And even that's going on today. But in the end, they always fall. Because we need to remember and think of God always and think of the things that he can do and pray to him for that. Circumstances that we see can change that fast. So in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. It's all sorts of people lying, you know, lying here, lying there. Even my grandkids, I'll ask them a question about something. Hey, did you do that? No. Really? Um, you did that, didn't you? Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the way you answered first, and then we'll take care of the other thing. But I'm going to forgive you. You know, we teach them to come just like they come to the Lord for forgiveness and instruction. Can't even do that today in a lot of things. You know, I remember I had the two greatest parents in the world. They were from Irish immigrants. And they took care of things. If you did something wrong, you got a spanking. Or you got the strap, which he didn't hit you very hard. It didn't happen too often. Because I learned to look at the face of my mother and father, and I knew that something was going to come if I didn't, A, tell the truth, or do something right and be honest. You know, and my mother was a little woman. She was about 5'2". She had a brogue. She was sweet. But I could see it in her eyes if she thought her son did something wrong. And that in those days, we had a party line on the telephone. You could pick it up and listen to other people's conversation. It was kind of interesting as a kid. But people heard things about each other and what was going on in the neighborhood. 
One time, me and my buddies started a fire in an empty lot at the end of the street. And the thing got away. The wind picked up. Wow. And there was two houses on either side. And it was trying to put it out, put it out, working hard. And one of the guys, there was three of us. One left, the other guy stayed. My hat got burnt to crisp. My, my jacket, which was a winter jacket, was destroyed. But I got the fire out. So when the fire department got there, they thought I was a hero. And the people were like, look at Vincent Moore. He's a hero. And my mother picked up the phone and just happened to, was going to ask for the line. And somebody was talking about me at the corner in a fire. And she got just a piece of it. So I went and did my newspaper route without a coat or a hat, because I didn't want to go home. I got my newspaper route done. I went home. I walked in the door. My mother's standing there. And she says, how was your day? I was like, not bad. She said, you started that fire. And then she started chasing me around with the broom handle. <laughs> when I was young, I couldn't get away from her. And by the time I was old enough to get away, she moved to other tactics. But it worked. You know, she didn't hit you hard. It was just a matter of, you're going to remember this. So finally here, another thing to remember is great leaders of the Bible were great at prayer. We read all these leaders in the Bible. Where did Moses go? Moses went to the Lord. What did he do? Prayed. He prayed for himself, and he prayed for intercessory prayer. He prayed for the nation of Israel. And so doesn't Nehemiah. He's praying for the nation of Israel. We should be praying for the nation of Israel. They're scattered. When the Lord brings them back, hallelujah, it's going to be great for them. Right now we're in the time of the Gentiles. We should also be praying for those who are unsaved because we're fortunate. We're blessed. We've been saved. We've been set apart by the Lord. And there's uh, millions of people out there that don't have that. And the time of the Gentiles is still open until the last number, that last one, comes. And then what? A lot of things happen. And it closes. And then it becomes the time for the Jews again. So great leaders of the Bible were great prayer at prayer. They were not leaders because of brilliancy or thought. You know, let's face it. Moses had the first 40 years of his life, he was in the house of the, the, the Pharaoh. Probably learned a lot. What did he do for the next 40 years? Took care of sheep. You know, sheep couldn't speak to him. He had to take care of him. God was giving him leadership skills on how to treat people to get astray because the sheep will take off. And then finally, for 40 years, he put them in charge of the nation of Israel while they went through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Never thought it would be 40 years, thought it would be two weeks. But they disobeyed. They turned their eyes away from the Lord. And it was his duty and responsibility to show them the way to the Lord. He went to the mountain, talked to the Lord, came back, spoke to the people. The Lord showed his presence during that time in a cloud and a pillar of fire. But Moses was given, he wasn't, don't think he was some kind of a genius, he was a regular man. And God gives regular men, men and women and lets incredible things be done through people, all of us. So it wasn't because he had a great culture or endowment, 
you know, wasn't a certain type of family. But because of the power of prayer, we can't underestimate the power of prayer. They could command the power of God because they knew the power of prayer. And that's what we want to pray for all of us here today. As we think about this week, think about those thoughts. Think about the characteristics that God showed in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. So let's finish in prayer here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. Thank you for men like Nehemiah and Moses and great leaders today, Lord. Many that have gone on to be with you and many that are out there today, Lord. Leading churches like this, leading Bible groups, leading just the way and bringing things into work or school or the street or uh, wherever it is that you put it on our heart to pray for people that, are, that haven't been saved. So, Lord, we pray for a great awakening for this nation. We pray that the leaders would do it about face if it's your will and your way, Lord. We pray that we could just get a tremendous harvest that would come before you come back for us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.